Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that your spirit would draw us closer to yourself. I pray that we would hear the heart of your Son, and I pray that it would draw us onwards. Amen. Jesus' assessment of the people of his day is one that we can identify with. We hear in Matthew that they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Harassed and helpless. Something that we can identify with. It's true that that's not our only experience, not by any stretch of the imagination. And to be honest, I always have a little bit of trepidation talking about something like this on a day that's so beautiful outside and where there is so much evident goodness from God. It's not our only experience to say that we are harassed and helpless. We have days of joy and strength and confidence. But it is worth acknowledging that there are other days that are not like that. Days when it feels like the world might come apart at any particular moment. There are days, and this is the metaphor that I use to describe the way it feels to me, when it feels like we're on a train that is moving far too fast. And we just hope that it comes to a stop before it runs out of track. Every week seems to produce another tragedy in the world that we live in. If you pay attention to news, you go, will this never end? It seems like something is breaking at every moment that the world might fall apart. And if we're still and quiet for a minute, we realize that every day and every week seems to reveal another fissure or tragedy within our own hearts. You see that even when all is well, There are things sort of lurking within us. We can be afflicted by frustration or loneliness or anger or sadness, even when we can't put our finger on something that's actually going wrong. Things can be all right in the world, and one word sends us into a tailspin. One word undoes us. One perceived slight or lack of attention, and suddenly what was fine is no longer fine. At the end, and I think all of us know this, the trouble actually begins inside of our own hearts. I think this is what I mean when I say that Jesus' words, harassed and helpless, are ones that we can identify with. We spend a great deal of time running from this. There's a long list of ways that we avoid sort of confronting the reality, things that we sort of used to paper over or distract, things that we use to keep us from seeing how fragmented, how anxious, how lonely we are, the ways that we keep ourselves from seeing that in the end, our hearts are anything but strong and joyful and confident in any given moment. We use our busyness. We use our entertainment. We use the pursuit of a new pleasure our workaholism, anything to distract, anything to cover up the fact that our hearts have fissures in them, 
They're fragmented. They're harassed. We harbor the belief that getting the external circumstances right will fix things. The new purchase, the better job, or perhaps retirement itself. The vacation. We harbor the belief that a new set of habits or better health will actually fix those things. And some of those things genuinely help. There are jobs that add to the fragmentation of our lives. A vacation can be a moment of rest and quietness where we can recollect ourselves before the Lord. Physical health, good family structures, stable societies, these are good soil for a healthy heart to grow in. But in the end, even with those things, we have to acknowledge that we can't fix our hearts themselves. We can't fix the chief thing that is wrong with us. The fact that there are those days where we are just overcome by sadness and frustration and there's nothing out there wrong points to the fact that the real problem is within. Our brokenness, the thing that ultimately harasses our lives, is within. And we're helpless to fix it. In the words of Matthew, harassed and helpless. If we parse our hearts, if we look for the source of this fragmentation and this brokenness, this anxiety, if we parse our hearts, we see there the wounds that we bear, scars that have never properly healed because of what other people have done to us. We see there our own guilt, things that we can't undo, things that we can't let go of. We see there our shame, our sense of unworthiness. We see our loneliness. We see the basic discontent with our lives. Jealousy, covetousness that springs from that when we wish that we had been given some other life other than the one that we've been given. We're afflicted by disinterest, by laziness. We stare at the work that God's given us to do and can't bring ourselves to do it. We're afflicted by apathy. We believe lies and obsess over things that aren't true. We obsess over things that really in the end just don't simply matter. Our hearts are harassed, in other words. They're driven to and fro by evil taskmasters, by scorching winds that dry them out and kill the things that are good in it. And we are helpless to do anything about it. Our sins and failures spring out of those harassed and helpless hearts. Our sins and failures are ways of dealing with the fissures and the brokenness, the emptiness and the dryness within. We struggle to have patience with those that we love because our hearts are in need and broken inside of us. We lash out in anger and hurt. We lust. We covet. We are selfish. Our sin springs from a heart that is broken, from a heart that is harassed and helpless. It's true that we mask all of this well. We have a million ways of covering this up and just staying busy so that we don't acknowledge it. And like I said, I bring all this up today with trepidation because it seems so out of joint with the beauty of a June day. 
It's true that we mask and cover all of this well. And it's also true that it's only part of our experience. We experience the glory and the grace and the goodness of God so regularly also. But it is a true part of our experience. And it's revealed every single time the stone hits the small well of our heart and the waves splash because of it. The word that we did not appreciate that sends us into a tailspin. This is true and we need to acknowledge it. You might say, Stephen, but why? Why are you bringing it up? Why do we need to acknowledge it today? And my simple point is this, is that we only will understand what it means that Jesus looks at us with compassion if we actually acknowledge the true brokenness of our hearts. In other words, his heart of compassion will be trite and superficial if we gloss over the brokenness of our hearts. It's only in seeing how far off we actually are that his compassion begins to be revealed in all of its glory and its power. And so as dangerous it is to ask you to do that, I would very simply say right now in this moment, Remember the depths of your brokenness. Remember the day when you were most fragmented. Remember the pain that grieves you most. Remember the sin that still plagues your conscience. In that memory then, hear the words of Matthew. When Jesus looked at the crowds, he had compassion compassion because they were harassed and helpless. Imagine that in your moment of weakness and brokenness, Jesus looks at you with compassion. Imagine in that harried and disconnected and fissured state, his heart turns within him. His stomach is in knots and he looks at you with deep compassion. He sees our plight, and his eyes fill with tears. He sees our plight, and his stomach turns over, and he hurts for you. His powerful, his unified, his living heart aches for you. It breaks for you. He does not share your self-loathing. He does not agree with your shame. He does not look at you the way that you look at yourself. He doesn't suffer from your despair that things will never be different. He doesn't run away from those things and hide his face from those things and paper over them and distract himself so that he won't remember them. He sees them as they truly are. He sees them more truly than you see them, than I see them. And his heart aches for you. His response isn't mere emotion, though. It's not powerless. It's not just a nice sentiment or a nice feeling for the things that are broken inside each of us. He knows what we need, that we actually need to be healed. He knows what we need, that we actually need to be transformed. He knows what we need, that we actually need to be forgiven. We need to be delivered from bondage. We need our hearts transformed. We need to be forgiven. A new family 
and a new kingdom to live in. He's anything but powerless. He enters our life with compassion. And he knows what it is that we need. He's not powerless. So powerful that he could climb a cross for you. So powerful that he would let his own heart be broken and body flayed for you. So powerful that he said, I would give myself to you, that you would be healed. Compassion mixed with power. His message, the cross itself, his words are oftentimes a threat to us. We cling to so many behaviors and patterns because they're the only ways that we know of coping with what's wrong with our hearts. We cling to things that cannot heal us, that only harm us further. And Jesus' words, his message, his cross is a threat to those things that we hang on to. But he won't stop because of his compassion and his love. It's terrifying for us to give up our defenses. It's terrifying for us to think about living with all the ways that we force that brokenness down. We're afraid that if we let those things go, if we stop, all of the pain would bubble up to the surface and undo us. And sometimes Jesus is a threat. But it's a threat that springs from love. Because he will not let us hold on to things that he knows will destroy us. He won't let us continue to deceive ourselves. He demands that we relinquish those things that would do us harm. He threatens us, but he threatens us from love for our own good. He simply loves us too much to leave us the way that we are. He enters in like light into a shuttered shed, revealing the darkness and the filth in the corners. And oftentimes we're scared and we push him away. And so we use our work, our pleasure, our distractions to keep the light at bay. Other times it's our pride that is our greatest hindrance. The sense that I can fix this myself. And so we keep pushing the gas, spinning the tires on the car stuck in the ditch, thinking this time it will get out of the mud. But he loves us too much to leave us in that particular place. He's, he's persistent. And we find that when we stop filling our lives with activity, when we stop filling our ears with noise, when we stop filling our eyes with distraction, we discover that he's still there, still proclaiming good news to us, still pursuing us with compassion. He keeps reminding us that he loves us. He keeps reminding us that he forgives us. He spe keeps speaking words, good news words, words of a different sort of life, a different sort of kingdom, a different sort of family. He keeps inviting us into his own life, reminding us that we were meant to live in the life of God, oriented towards him and him alone, the way that a plant climbs towards the sun. If we listen longer, we begin to hear more and more of the description of the kingdom, of a place where forgiveness triumphs over revenge and grudges, a place where humility triumphs over pride, a place where self-sacrifice and giving 
triumphs over taking and self-protection, we begin to hear the words of the kingdom. A word, a kingdom, where most of what our world cherishes will have to be relinquished. But it's a place of life, a place of joy, a place that answers the hurts and the needs of our heart. We can't cling to our pride. We can't cling to our fear, to our covetousness, and still enter into this place. In the very end, we will discover that those things very simply are incompatible with the kingdom of God. The grudges that we bear are incompatible with the kingdom. The self-loathing that we feel is incompatible with the kingdom. The unwillingness to forgive, the anger, these things are incompatible with the kingdom of God. And in the end, we discover that we cannot cling to these things that the world cherishes and enter into this kingdom. We cannot nurse bitterness and refuse forgiveness and still receive his healing. We must empty our hands of all that we carry as we enter. We must empty our hands if we would receive those gifts, that life that he offers us. It takes a lifetime and more to learn to make that exchange. Don't despair if you say I've only begun to understand what it means to give up one tiny little thing to receive the gifts of the kingdom. It takes a lifetime and more to learn to make that exchange. Even when we come to the very end of our lives, we will realize that there is so much more that we needed to relinquish, so much that we were clinging to that we did not need, and so much more to receive. We will discover at the very tail end of our lives that we have only scratched the surface of the goodness that God would give us. And when we see him, that transformation will become complete. We will be made like him in the words of the Bible, for we will see him as he is. Don't despair if it takes a lifetime to learn to relinquish these ways of dealing with our brokenness, to receive God's ways of healing our brokenness. Don't despair. God is gracious. He promises in Philippians to finish the work that he's begun in us. God is gracious, even if it takes a lifetime. He calls us to work out this salvation. He calls us to walk in newness of life. These are all biblical phrases. He calls us to abide in the Lord. But even when our response is half-hearted, even when our response lacks so much courage or will or strength. Even in those moments, the wind of the Spirit keeps blowing in our lives. We are like a little sailboat. We would move much faster, I suppose, if we raised our sails fully into the wind of the Spirit and if we gripped that tiller with courage and purpose and shot straight for the heart of God. But even when we're half-hearted and we're zooming off one direction or another, chasing some siren of the world, even when the sails are dropped because we have no energy or strength to follow, even in those moments, the wind of the Spirit keeps blowing. As long as we stay in the boat, God will push us into the harbor in the end. There is no room for despair in this kingdom of God. Stay in the boat. However feebly, thrust your hope on the Lord Jesus. 
Claim him and the wind of the Spirit will drive you home. We pray that as we go, we learn to raise the sail higher and to grip the tiller with more firmness that God's Spirit is faithful and we need not despair. His grace is evident. His grace is seen, and this is one of the beautiful parts of this passage, His grace is seen in the fact that long before we are perfected, long before we are worthy, He invites us into this great work of salvation and healing and restoration for others. Long before we have our act together, long before we've learned to make this exchange of relinquishing the ways we try to protect our broken hearts and receiving his way of healing them, long before we learn to make that exchange, he invites us in and he says very simply, look around you. There are others who are harassed and helpless. There are others with broken hearts. Pray for them. Pray that God would send ordinary workers into their lives, people who would begin to declare the words of the kingdom, people who would begin to heal them. Look at those people who are believing lies and obsessed with the hurt that has been caused to them and pray for them that God's workers would go with healing and transformation. Pray for the workers of the kingdom to go, he says. Pray for ordinary people people like you and me who are just beginning to learn this movement of love and faith. Pray for ordinary people to step close to them and show them something of Jesus. Long before we are worthy or prepared, he says, step into my work. Step into my work. We are unready for it, but Jesus is undaunted. We are unready. But he says, come with me, come with me. In his grace, God sends unprepared workers into the lives of others to show them just a glimmer of the glory of the kingdom. In his grace, he sends ordinary people, people like you and me. We begin in prayer knowing that only God can do this, saying, Lord, send workers. And he frequently turns and says back to us, go in my name. Go in my name into their lives and offer them something of my love. We are unready, but he is undaunted. He invites us into his work of transformation. He invites us into his work of healing. And his compassionate heart freely forgives our missteps. Don't be concerned if you say, I don't know how to show the love of Jesus to my brother or sister or neighbor. The compassion of Jesus forgives our missteps. It's with that compassion that I want to close. Jesus looks at each of us with deep compassion and is not repulsed by our failure. The parts of you that repel you, he is not repulsed by those things. But he's also not repulsed by the failure of those that he's calling you to pray for. He doesn't look at them and despise them either. He looks at them with compassion, just as he looks at you with compassion. He's not repulsed by the feebleness of your prayers. You hear this call of the Lord Jesus, pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send workers into the harvest. And you say, one day in ten, I remember for five minutes to pray for these sorts of things. How weak am I? But Jesus is not repulsed 
by the weakness, the inadequacy of our prayers. He's not repulsed by our stumbling attempts to be his workers. He looks at us with compassion. He loves each of us, and he longs to heal our scattered hearts. At the end, this story is the story of the one who is the good shepherd. Jesus looks at us and says, y'all need a shepherd. You're like sheep scattered and harried. And he looks at us and he says, would you listen to my voice? Would you follow? Would you allow me to be your shepherd? My prayer today is that you would go home unable to forget the compassion of the Lord Jesus, unable to forget the way that he looks at you. Amen.